This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Professor Alex Colley from Monash University joined me to talk about his latest research into the health status of people receiving the Disability Support Pension or the New Start Allowance. We talk about the barriers and challenges they currently face in engaging with the welfare system and receiving adequate support. Then, finally... Red Stitch Actors Theatre director Ella Caldwell and cast members Daniela Fadanacci and Hannah Fredrickson all joined me in the studio to talk about their Australian premiere of Oil. Oil is all about humanity's troubled relationship with that fossil fuel and life-changing resource, oil. Now, I'm so pleased to have with me in the studio uh, a wonderful academic who's doing some important work with his colleagues over at Monash University. Professor Alex Colley is the Director of the Insurance Work and Health Research Group in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash. And we're going to be talking about a couple of um, the research reports that have come out of a big study that uh, Alex has done uh, looking into the disability support pension and New Start and the health status of people applying for those benefits, but also who are receiving them. And um, some of the, I guess, experiences of going through that process and also the experiences of living on those um, benefits, as they're called, um, they're certainly not as beneficial as they once were, and they're also much more difficult to receive. So we're going to get into the nitty gritty of that. And as I said earlier, you may be aware that we've discussed this subject in some depth before with Luke. Enrique Gomez uh, at The Guardian Australia and he was talking um, about his first-hand reporting, speaking with people who do live on the disability support pension and also following those Senate inquiries that were quite revealing as to um, the people who are on New Start and how they try to survive on that benefit. So anyway, we'll get into some of the rigorous academic research that Alex has um, wonderfully put together with his colleagues and I welcome Alex now. Hi there. Hi, thanks Amy for having me on. It's great to have you in and really great to talk about this issue. Um, I think this is one of the issues for me that um, focuses on a group that certainly is vocal and can advocate for themselves. Um, they don't really you know, need help in that arena, but they certainly don't get the coverage and the understanding and the nuance that's required when we're talking about this issue of welfare and the disability support pension um, and New Start. And certainly there are some media outlets that do provide that nuance, but otherwise we can get some quite derogatory and and very superficial understandings of um, people who require this support, what their circumstances are, and also um, their experiences in the system trying to navigate. So I'm really glad that you've done this research. First of all, what brought you to decide to focus your attention and energy on on this particular field? Yeah, well, um, mainly um, the number of people involved in these systems of income support in Australia. So we've got about 1.4 million people on the DSP or receiving Newstart. And over the last 10 or 15 years, we've been doing a lot of work in some other benefit systems in Australia, like workers' compensation and motor vehicle accident compensation, where there's now a lot of research evidence that shows that um, sometimes those systems can be helpful and sometimes they can be really harmful for people's health. And we started looking about 18 months ago for similar research 
in their social security system in Centrelink and really came up quite short. There didn't seem to be a lot of evidence around people's experiences of the sort of bureaucratic processes that we put them through in the Centrelink benefit system or the impacts that might have on their health and well-being and their ability to function in life generally. So um, I was fortunate enough to get some um, support from Monash University to start a program of research around the DSP, which sort of relatively quickly expanded as we realised that there were lots of people on Newstart with serious medical conditions and disabilities as well. And so we're really about a year into that program of research. There's lots more to go, mm. um, but it's produced these first couple of reports that um, I guess we'll be talking about today. Yes, we will. Um, to give some background for our conversation that we'll get into, um, I was interested about the differences in the two allowances to begin with in the present day. Um, the disability support pension is um, for people having assessed, being assessed as having a permanent disability, preventing them from working more than 15 hours a week for at least two years. And as of uh, this March, the maximum fortnightly payment um, for a single adult without children was $843.60 um, compared with New Start, which um, can be $555.70 a fortnight for a single adult without children. Of course, that does change a little bit, but not a whole lot, as we've seen in the news about people asking for that the new start rate to be lifted. Um, but I was particularly interested in the historic changes that have happened from uh, coalition governments and Labor governments, because I think a lot of people might assume that Labor has been more lenient or not so um, harsh, but that certainly isn't the case. Um, so I was interested in this, um, the changes over time, and wondering if you could step us through some of those changes, particu particularly I know that um, in 2005 the Howard government uh, changed some of the requirements so that people um, were previously able to work 30 hours and then it was halved down to 15, and then there were changes by the Rudd and Gillard years as well. So how have things subsequently changed to mean that we're at the place that we're at now? Yeah, there's been all sorts of changes for the last 10 or 15 years and I guess the main theme of those changes has been making it more challenging and difficult to get access to the DSP. That The one you mentioned was probably the first of a series of really quite significant things. So previously people could were eligible if they could work um, less... Sorry, they were eligible if they were unable to work less than 30 hours per week. That changed to 15 and so now what we see is a large number of people on the New Start Allowance who have a medical condition or disability who can work between 15 or 30 hours a week but don't quite qualify for the DSP. So that, and that group has grown significantly over time. Um, some of the other big changes have been things like changes to the assessment process, which were, they, were, they were introduced in uh, 2015. Um, and the current, or the, the government at the time, the Liberal government at the time, introduced a change that basically made it more challenging for people to demonstrate that they were uh, eligible for the DSP. So they had to go through a two-stage process, uh, one being medically assessed to demonstrate that their disability was permanent, um, diagnosed and stabilised, and another one to look at their ability to work, their job capacity assessment. Um, and there have been a raft of other things along the way as well. Um, a few years back... Uh, what was introduced was a thing called a requirement to go through a program of support, which is essentially um, trying to find a job for 18 months. 
And um, so most people are required to demonstrate that they have been through a program of support, um, which means that while you're doing that, you're receiving a lower benefit than the DSP. So typically people are on New Start, um, but still living with a significant medical condition or disability. So um, lots of other small changes around the edges as well, but um, all of these things have progressively made it more challenging for people to get access to the DSP. Mm. I would imagine that that um, last change with the 18-month program, that may actually be detrimental to someone's health depending on their medical condition. Um, Look, we know there's a lot of international research evidence that shows that um, when people are ill and unwell, when you... um, when you sort of make them go through complex bureaucratic processes, um, that it can influence their health in a negative way. And so um, things like... Um, and, and what we've seen progressively, I would say, in our, in our Centrelink system with the DSP is a shifting of the burden of proof from um, the government onto the individual who's applying. So, um, for instance, with the, with the medical assessments now, it used to be that... Um, people could get a, a report from their treating doctor who would write to Centrelink and say this person has this condition. And um, um, now what is required is the, the Centrelink um, sends the person a checklist and they have to gather all the medical evidence themselves and submit that as part of their application process for the DSP. So we've got people who are you know, almost by definition very ill or disabled who are having to go through this process of collecting all the information required to demonstrate eligibility Um, and it used to be sort of the other way around whereas the government would help a bit more with that assessment process so Mm. those sorts of there's good evidence in in other Australian benefit systems like in workers compensation or in motor vehicle compensation and in international social security systems that the more of those sort of compliance and administrative processes that we pile into these systems the larger impact it can have on people's health particularly on their mental health. Yes, it certainly sounds like it can be stressful, but also um, fatiguing if fatigue is part of your condition. Um, and that I, I'm aware that sometimes in public um, health services, there are social workers who sometimes try to assist in at least decoding some of the, that bureaucratic language that people are very confused by. Um, I certainly am confused by any of the government language that I ever read about and have to get my sister to translate it for me because it's just kind of not in plain English. Um, and do you think that in terms of that accessibility um, and and the application process um, through this research, that it's become more convoluted in, in a sense of the communication, the way that the government communicates with um, people, not just the criteria or the, the actual requirements? Yeah, that's definitely changed as well. In, in addition to all of these, I guess, what I'd call policy changes, we've seen changes to the way that the systems function more of the services moving online, so people having to apply through MyGov and do all those sorts of things, less face-to-face interaction, mm. and that's had, a, had also had an impact. Um, you know, in the course of the study that we just wrapped up where we were interviewing people about their experiences of applying, I spoke to some people who uh, weren't even able to sort of work up their energy to start the application process. They, were, they knew what was ahead of them. Um, there are some really good resources around um, in Australia to help people apply, but they're run by um, charities and not-for-profits um, um, with sort of limited limited ability to help the tens and thousands of people who are applying every year. Um, mm. And what comes from 
the bureaucracy, the um, Centrelink system is is typically considered to be quite complex and difficult by the people who are applying. So that was one of the clear messages from our DSP experience study is people found it really hard to know what to do to apply, even to find information um, about how they should apply. And even just getting in contact with Centrelink, people found really quite challenging and being able to get to speak to someone about their process or getting the right information online or in an office was was a real barrier to this. And so it's certainly not an easy thing to embark upon an application for a DSP. It's really challenging. Um, And just knowing what to do in the first place is actually um, one of the significant challenges. So I actually think we're sort of failing at the first hurdle, which is, you know, people, if they think they might be eligible, are having trouble figuring out how to go about it. Yes. Um, My understanding is a lot of people end up trying to share their experience and their inside knowledge of having applied and knowing what worked or didn't work or how much evidence was sufficient or not sufficient. Um, And it seems like that's an informal but not particularly great way of putting the burden back on the people who are applying rather than the government. Um, I want to ask just before we get into the nitty gritty on this report and this particular findings, in um, 2012 and 2014, my understanding is that disability support pension recipients under 35 um, assessed being able to work at least eight hours needed to participate in compulsory employment related activities and regular Centrelink interviews. Is that still the case for under 35s? I'd have to go and check, but I believe it is still a case. And certainly the under-35 group have been sort of um, singled out for a few policy changes a lot over the years. Um, what has happened since then, it was around about 2012 as well, is this idea of participating in a program of support has been introduced, mm. um, not just for people under 35, but for the majority of DSP applicants as well, um, which is a, essentially sort of compulsory job-seeking activity. Yeah. Um, before you become eligible for the DSP. Um, so um, the sort of rules change quite regularly um, and they're being adjusted and tightened. On that particular one, I'd have to check. I believe it's still mm. the case. There have been some that have been introduced and then removed. So, for instance, a couple of years ago, the the government introduced a policy of reassessing people who were already um receiving the DSP to determine if they were still eligible for it and uh, had a target of reassessing 90,000 DSP recipients. Um, And they stopped that about halfway through because um, after tens of thousands of assessments, I think it was found that very few people were were found to be ineligible, um, which was quite a a good thing that it was stopped um, because a similar program in the UK um, a while back was assessed by a, a fellow called Ben Barr, who's an academic over there, um, where in the English disability benefit system, the government reassessed a million people who were receiving disability benefits. And there was some good quality research showing that just that reassessment process was associated with a, a significant increase in suicides, in antidepressant use and in, in mental health conditions in the community. So these sort of seemingly benign bureaucratic processes actually have really significant health impacts on people, mm. um, and which is why we have to be really careful about how we design and administer these systems and why we sort of felt there was a need for more evidence to underpin the design and um, implementation of policy in the Centrelink system. We still need a lot more research, I think, to help 
but beginning to tease things apart um, and have these sorts of conversations is, is the start, I think. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the experiences element first, and then we'll go into more detail on the other report, which you've got out um, previous to that. So this one um, is fantastic. And as I, I should mention that people playing along at home can actually look at these reports themselves and see the graphs if you're more of a visual person um, at dspstudy.com. But it's really, really useful research. And so I'm particularly interested to look at the um, evidence that you gathered, um, I was really interested in some of the, well, not surprised, but interested when I read the results, um, when I particularly saw that, um, that one of the questions was around whether people believed that Centrelink had treated them fairly. Um, and obviously that could mean a range of things. But what was quite revealing um, was that those uh, receiving the DSP versus applied for the DSP had quite drastically different responses yeah yeah and that's a consistent difference that we found throughout that particular study people Mm. who were receiving the dsp tended to think the processes were a bit more friendly still some quite shocking results there but compared to people who were applying where the results were quite dramatic um and so that's that question um is one where we've actually got a series of questions in this study where we're trying to understand if people think the process is fair and if if their interactions with Centrelink are fair. And the reason that is important is because we know that people, if they think they've been through a a fair process to get to a decision, they're more likely to accept that decision. If they think the process to get there is unfair, they're more likely to not accept it and they're more likely to have significant health conditions associated with or have the health conditions exacerbated. and the other sort of lens we've tried to take through this study is looking at the burden of the administrative processes that people go through in applying. So um, there's some interesting evidence around internationally around um, the impacts of um, bureaucratic processes um, and administrative processes. And we've, so we've tried to understand sort of the psychological costs of people being involved in the application process for the DSP. Mm. And what was illuminating also was that it seems like the system and decision-making is quite opaque and that um, both cohorts almost equally strongly disagreed and disagreed that um, Centrelink clearly didn't explain the way the decision had been made or in the majority of cases people believed that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so people are saying things like um, that the decisions aren't being made in a timely manner And when they are made, um, the reasons for the decisions aren't being explained. And so the the vast majority of people who responded to this survey were agreeing with those statements. And, you know, that's a pretty clear demonstration that they don't think that the process that they're um, going through is fair because they're not having decisions explained and things are taking a long time. Mm. Um, And, yeah, they're they're some of the challenges we see at the moment, I think, in, in this system. Yes, and um, one of the answers as well that I guess flows from that is around the stress that's involved and um, particularly around person-to-person interaction and even just online, not personal interaction with Centrelink. Um, And one of the questions was around whether your interactions with Centrelink have been stress-free. And um, on the strongly disagree end, those applying for the DSP said 88% of the time said um, they strongly disagreed with that statement that clearly it was very stress 
stressful um, and then probably uh, 56% on the strongly disagree for those receiving the DSP and then it slowly steps down to quite minimal on the agree. So it's clear that as you say, mental health is a factor, even if that's not the condition the person is applying with, that it certainly exacerbates um, stress and can cause anxiety. Yeah, it's a stressful process. There's, yeah. no, there's no doubt about that for most people. There are mm. some people um, who we interviewed for this study um, who had uh, applied for the DSP 20 years ago and received it when it was really a different policy regime. And some of those people I spoke to reported having a, a much less troublesome process mm. and that's so you know we and we will be looking at through this survey um when people started receiving the dsp and looking to see whether they, if they were applying and receiving it you know, more than five or ten years ago if they were less likely to consider it stressful more likely to think that they had their decisions explained those sorts of things yeah and there are people with some disabilities who have a less stressful process because they're almost automatically accepted onto the DSP. So um, there are, for instance, people who are completely blind, uh, eligible for the DSP, um, and um, do not have to go through some of the processes that people with other conditions do, just as an example. Mm. Um, and so there are a small number of people who um, find it less stressful and less burdensome, but the vast majority find it to be a stressful process. And we know, again, from other research that that can have significant impacts on their health and people you have to keep in mind that people who are going through this process are already unhealthy and unwell we know that the vast you know our other study shows that half of people on the new start allowance report psychological and mental health conditions Um, and they're the people who are applying for the dsp and we're putting them through this really stressful process so that's not a good combination no Uh, it's likely to have a a negative outcome more likely to have a negative outcome than a positive outcome Mm. which is why one of the key messages from this study about people's experiences is we have to seriously look at the way we're running these systems so that we don't make things worse Um, we're likely to be harming people at the moment and we've shown that in other benefit systems around the country and around the world Um, and that's not a, not the outcome that we're looking for here. No, we're certainly not the point to... <laughs> and if you were hoping that someone was able to engage in some form of work, even at a low level, you're potentially actively preventing them from being well enough to do that. Yeah, that's, that's one of the um, really key messages from this, I think, is that it's really hard to work when you're sick. Um, and some of these processes are, are likely to be making people sicker. So where if the end goal here from the government's policy point of view is to help people to get back into work, yeah, we're, not, we're not doing things well um, by the way we're sort of administering these systems at the moment. Indeed. And um, anecdotally uh, on Twitter, that gloried platform, which obviously sometimes needs fact-checking, but I did hear that even people with permanent disabilities like, for example, legally blind um, individuals and even people with cerebral palsy that they're often required to come back into Centrelink to prove that they're still legally blind and still have cerebral palsy and there are some conditions that quite literally do not you don't recover from um, and there seems to be some kind of arbitrary bureaucratic hurdles there. Well there was this program of reassessments I think for which um, required a lot of people to continue to demonstrate that they were still disabled um, Look, all sorts of strange, uh, weird and wonderful things happen in these benefit systems because what we do is 
they're very complex. They're sort of written down in legislation and they require people who are working in these government um, bureaucracies to understand them in the first instance, which is a, not an easy thing to do, and then interact with people who are unwell and unhealthy and in challenging situations in their life. Um, and so we sort of have this expectation that the policies will be administered uniformly across the country in all of the many different Centrelink offices and things around the world, around the nation. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to achieve, I think. It really comes down to the individual staff working in those Centrelink offices and the way that they interpret policy and procedures and guidelines. Um, and so from time to time you hear very strange things occurring like that. Um, so that doesn't surprise me that you know, those things occur on Twitter. I've, I've heard mm. lots of those sorts of stories myself. When you've got a massive bureaucracy like this and hundreds of thousands of people involved in applying for and receiving benefits um, there's often cases of things um, occurring that are a bit strange yeah so let's talk about this uh, other report the DSP health study report which is really great and it's looking in depth about um, the people who are receiving the disability support pension and the new start allowance as compared with regular wage earners um, and I was interested also in the characteristics table when we're looking at the types of uh, individuals and the experiences and health condition types that they're experiencing. Um, there are some kind of key differences here, I guess, uh, when you're looking at um, yeah, the different benefits versus regular wage earners. So um, if we're looking at, for example... Uh, head injury, stroke and brain damage, um, 0.1% of those people are wage earners, 3.8% are in the DSP and there are 0% of those people on the New Start um, allowance. And then if we look at something like the physical um, element, there are 15% of wage earners who are have some kind of physical disability, 46.9% um, of DSP who have a physical disability as their main disability and the other new start allowance is 29.2%. Um, now, it seems like there are some high proportions of um, significant disability or, or impact on activity for those who are in the new start group. And I'm interested in your understanding of New Start becoming almost a backstop or a default um, for people who cannot prove down to the number <laughs> that they have a physical disability, that their condition will not fluctuate at all um, in the next two years. Because some of these uh, criteria are particularly difficult for those who have neurological conditions because by nature they fluctuate. Um, so I'm wondering from your personal perspective, having, you know, seen this data up close and, you know, some of the people or their experiences, um, what were some of the takeaways that you had um, about what the kind of major characteristic differences were between those core groups? I, I guess the, the major differences, are the, the way I would characterise it is people who are receiving the DSP have a very significant set of medical conditions and disabilities and lots of multimorbidity, which means they have multiple conditions. Um, and then at the other end of the scale, I've got people who are working and earning wages or business income for a living, and they're much less likely to have a single or multiple conditions. And in between, we have the New Start group. So there's somewhere between people on the DSP and, and um, 
the wage earners group in this study. And it's worth bearing in mind that this is all self-reported data about the health conditions that people think they have. It's a survey conducted by the ABS every four years. It's a very big national survey. And we used the latest data that was available, um, which at the time was 2014-15. It's since been conducted again um, just last year. So we'll look at it again soon. Um, the most striking differences were in mental health or in psychological area for both the DSP group and the New Start Allowance group. So the conditions that people were much more likely to report than wage earners in both the DSP and New Start groups were psychological in nature, depression and anxiety, uh, uh, those sorts of things. Um, and interestingly, in the DSP group, although only 16% of people said a psychological condition was their main disability, 69% of them reported having a psychological or behavioural condition, um, which shows that there are a lot of people who say my main disability is a physical condition or a nervous system condition or something else, mm. but they still have a mental health issue as well. Yeah, um, and, and we know that chronic pain and chronic ill health can cause mental health conditions. That's right. There's, you know, there's strong sort of associations between these these health conditions, and so that was also one of the, the main findings: is the the number of conditions that people were reporting were, were much higher in the DSP group and in the New Start Allowance group than in people who were working in in, in our wage earners group. So lots of multimorbidity, lots of very complex conditions co-occurring in people. Um, which is a it's a challenging health picture to to deal with. Yeah, yeah it seems like it would make um, it harder to assess someone's capacity when you have these kind of interacting factors that are codependent, and they might even rely on environmental factors, personal yeah. factors, um, and that they could change even in a permanent health disability condition. Yeah, I mean that, and that is one of the interesting parts of the application process for the DSP is being eligible um, or demonstrating eligibility, you, you sort of get assessed against a thing called tables of impairment or impairment tables. And you have to achieve a certain number of points on one table or across multiple tables. So if you have multiple conditions, like it appears that a lot of people do in the DSP, then um, there's this sort of process that goes on where you get assessed against multiple different tables and they add the points up to determine whether you're eligible. And so it's a very complex approach to um, determining eligibility really um, and as you say a lot of the conditions that people are reporting by nature are sort of symptomatic they fluctuate from time to time so people might be relatively good one day and um, feeling terrible the next and so demonstrating that your condition is stabilized and is fully treated which is another one of the mm. criteria is also a, a sort of a can be a challenging thing so it is really hard now to actually demonstrate that you meet all the criteria for the DSP, given all of these sorts of different things are in play. Yeah. How does one determine whether someone's been fully treated? Is it based on a medical criteria or diagnostic or treatment criteria that's kind of used by most doctors? It seems like it's quite hard to know that. It's, a, it's based on a medical assessment. and By a um, government doctor? By a, a government-contracted doctor. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, one of the challenges, I think, is I mean, we know that um, medical professions sometimes disagree about what appropriate treatments are for these conditions, and so it's really the opinion of that um, assessing doctor about whether this person has exhausted all of their treatment options. Um, that's really um, what it comes down to. And 
one doctor may have a different opinion on that to another one. Um, and we know there is sort of variability in, in treatment for all of the sorts of health conditions we're talking about here. And so that is another sort of area of, I guess, subjectivity in the assessment process as well. Yes. Well, I'm just thinking even with mental health conditions, that is particularly fraught if you're thinking about something like depression, because if you had severe depression, there are things like um, electrical stimulation, which is a treatment option, but yes. not everyone would want to go through that. No, that's right. And so, yeah, so ECT might be an option. Yes. But whether it's an acceptable option to the individual, and if the treating doctor says, well, you haven't had ECT yet, so therefore you aren't fully treated, mm. then you're no longer eligible. You wouldn't be eligible. You would meet that criteria. And another option would be um, back pain, um, where you know, it's not uncommon for people to have spinal surgery for back pain, but actually we know that um, in many cases that's a poor treatment option, but it still happens. And we, we so it's a, an area where we're likely to get differing medical opinions about whether treatment options have been fully exhausted. And those sorts of musculoskeletal mm. conditions are very common in, in um, people applying for the DSP. So, yeah, there's a lot of medical uncertainty about what that fully treatment, fully treated criteria means. I think it's, it's, it's a problem. Yes. Um, and just finally, in terms of the age group um, and the, t- the ages of the people, um, I know a lot of people might have the assumption that younger people may not be quite as affected. And, of course, in the statistics, they are technically in most categories not. But even in um, currently received the DSP, the greatest cohort in this study was 35 to 44 years of age. Um, and what struck me in particular is that I know that a lot of um, autoimmune illnesses, for example, have an onset in your 30s and early 40s. So there are a lot of kind of really severe conditions that can have a semi-young onset in life. And even um, young people can have strokes, for example. So it seems like that is also a factor is that these people will be living for, to quite an advanced age, hopefully. Um, but they're being affected and requiring this support earlier in their years. And um, it perhaps would add to the pressure of having that need and requirement and um, complete probably lack of control over whether they will continue to have that support i think that so yes i I sort of agree with that i think that that if people can acquire disabilities at any age Mm. really um and one of the reasons that um the dsp has been a focus of successive governments i think is because people are typically on it for a very long period of time and so when you add up the cost over people's lifetimes, it becomes quite significant. And when there's three quarters of a million people receiving the DSP, it becomes a very big line item in the budget. Um, and when you're trying to get the budget back into surplus, it sort of automatically becomes something that you look at to try to reduce the overall cost. So I think uh, I'm sort of, I mean, I know I'm not directly addressing your question, but I think the fact that we get people of all ages on it for a very long time has has been one of the things that has driven a focus on making it more challenging for people to access the DSP. Mm. Um, and that has been an explicit policy of successive governments, I think, is to reduce the cost of the welfare system. Yeah. And the DSP has been, um, has been targeted. Yeah. Well, I'd be interested um, at a future time to talk about the international comparisons because I know that in some studies it's been shown that when you provide 
greater security, financial security and stability for people who are unwell or out of work, that they're more likely to then become engaged in work and volunteer work and contribute in those ways, not that they're required to, to be a a good citizen, but that means they then are contributing tax back and potentially becoming able to be part and have an identity that's associated with whatever it is that's their passion. Yeah, and it goes beyond that, I think, so we know. Mm. I mean, the things, a lot of the things that um, cause people to be unwell are social in nature, the so-called social determinants of health. And um, a really significant one of those are things like whether you're living in poverty, whether you have secure housing, whether you can afford to feed yourself. Mm. And so at the moment we have nearly 300,000 people in Australia with significant medical conditions and disabilities on the New Start Allowance, which is one of the lowest rates of... Um, income support in the developed world Um, and so you know alleviating the rate of poverty in that group would go a long way to helping them be more healthy and if you're more healthy you're more able to participate in employment so um, what we we tend to have these very narrow um, sort of weird discussions in Australia around um, who should be receiving new start and these sorts of things we don't look at the bigger picture And one of the things we demonstrated pretty clearly in this health study is that both of these groups are using lots of health services, which is a cost to government. It just hasn't been counted. So if we could help them be more healthy, we're Mm. likely to reduce the costs in the healthcare budget. Um, So, you know, I I have never seen a study where government has looked at the cost of healthcare delivery to people on Newstart, for instance. Um, but if they that did, would be very revealing. Yeah, and they'd probably find, oh, it's a lot. I mean, we've yeah. shown that it's a lot of healthcare that's being used and paid for by government. And so if we were to um, maybe offset the cost of increasing the rate of new start with a reduction in the expenditure in the healthcare budget, maybe it's not such a scary proposition after all from a, a budget bottom line. Mm. We just haven't seen that sort of nuanced thinking yet, I don't think. Um, and that's really the direction that we're trying to take the argument in is let's look at the bigger picture rather than just focusing on individual benefit payments. Yes. And you did show in that study that um, that both cohorts were quite more likely to go to the emergency department in 12 months and also to see their GP as well. So certainly there's a kind of um, higher demand, as you say, for people needing to manage their conditions if they've got multiple medications to keep getting prescriptions for those medications and having it actively managed by often more than one doctor. Yeah, and much more likely to be hospitalised. And, you know, hospital admission is an incredibly expensive thing Mm. paid for by the taxpayer. Um, And so there are costs elsewhere in our system, I guess that's the main point, um, that we don't count, um, that could be alleviated by focusing on improving the health of people here. And one way to improve health that we point out is actually to increase um, or reduce the amount of financial stress and homelessness and poverty and those sorts of things, which there's an obvious way to do that. We're just sort of, the government seems unwilling to approach that at the moment, Mm. um, despite a huge amount of evidence showing that it would be beneficial. Yeah. And just finally, Alex, um, you did make the news briefly (laughs) when um, there was a bit of a um, misuse of the data from this study by a liberal um, parliamentarian, Jason Falinski, who wrote a letter to um, parents of a a person. And I'm interested in how um, 
this data could even be misused. I think it was talking about the drug testing trial that was proposed and is being proposed by the government and is quite a controversial um, trial. From your perspective and this research, um, I don't think it did show what the, the government MP thought it did. Yeah, that was, look, that was an interesting um, sort of thing that occurred. I was contacted by the parents of someone who was on Newstart um, who had written to... Um, the Liberal MP Jason Flinsky saying, asking him to reconsider his support for the drug testing trial. And in response, he cited this report and one statistic in the report, which does show that people on Newstart are four times more likely than people earning wages to report, self-report a drug or alcohol problem. Um, you've seen the report, so you'll realise there's hundreds of statistics yes, in the report. <laughs> a lot. And so what had happened is someone had paid a lot of attention to figure five on page 17 or something of the report yeah. and pulled out an individual statistic and was using that to say this is justification for drug testing new start recipients. And you know, if they had bothered to read the conclusions of the report or even the executive summary, they would realise that you know, our recommendations looking at the whole of the data were actually that, you know, that's actually one of a raft of sort of mental and health and behavioural conditions that people report and we need a much more sophisticated response to this complex set of health issues that we're seeing in people with Newstart and extra bureaucracy and administration like drug testing people and then sort of partitioning their income if they fail a drug test is the opposite of what we're actually saying is needed. One of the things we say is we need to make the um, administrative processes simpler and less bureaucratic um, and we need to pay attention to the social determinants of health, like Im improving people's living conditions. Um, and, yeah, so it was basically taking a statistic completely out of context and misusing it in my point of view, from my mm. point of view for a purpose that, again, um, you know, peak health agencies and peak social uh, agencies around the country um, are arguing pretty strongly that there's not really any evidence that drug testing is new start recipients is going to be helpful. We need a much more sophisticated response to that. And that, cause that's what I mean. We're sort of in this process in our sort of debate in public life at the moment where we focus on individual things like drug testing and that really takes away from the bigger picture and things that are likely to be helpful in these groups and actually likely to help the budget more than um, drug testing might mm, mm. if we just stood back and looked at the totality of the evidence and people's experiences and designed a sort of much more nuanced response to it that would be way more likely to have the intended outcomes, I think. Yeah. Well, I hope that the government utilises the full breadth of your research and the future reports that will be coming from this um, data, and I look forward to reading it. And if people want to look at it themselves and get to know some of the facts and statistics and your conclusions, they can visit the website dspstudy.com. And of course, they could follow you on Twitter if they so choose as well, which is what I decided to do. And um, thank you so much, Alex, for taking the time to explain this to us and give us a better insight into the experiences of people who are um, applying for and receiving the Disability Support Pension and New Start. And hopefully um, we see some improvements and changes. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for the <laughs> opportunity to come and talk. I think it'll be a long um, process, but we're aiming to 
do a lot more of the research to yeah, to try to help yes um, in the future. Give an evidence base for these policy decisions. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's so wonderful. I've been speaking with Professor Alex Colley. He's the Director of the Insurance Work and Health Research Group at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. And as I said, we've been talking about his research with colleagues into the health status of people receiving the Disability Support Pension and New Start and the barriers to becoming employed and um, engaging in various activities in life. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, I'm really delighted to have with me some very talented people in the studio. It's exciting, I've got to say. And certainly you would know if you listen to Uncommon Sense that this show is a fan of Red Stitch Actors Theatre for a reason, because it's all about acting, which of course seems like an oxymoron if it's about the theatre, but it does have a different kind of emphasis than some of the other um, acting approaches or theatre approaches. And so I'm joined now by director Ella Coldwell, cast members Daniela Farinacci and Hannah Fredrickson, and they um, have been involved in this wonderful play called Oil. So hello, Ella. Good morning. Good Amy. morning. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Hi there. And hello, Daniela. Hello. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. It's so wonderful to have you all and to talk about this play, Oil, which is really what the title kind of says. It's, it is about oil um, and particularly talking about the fossil fuel oil. Um, and it's fascinating to approach a subject like that, which can be kind of confronting because it's, um, you know, in any ways that we might contemporarily talk about oil, it would be as climate change, talking as a scientist, talking as a miner or someone from a, a big ASX listed company perhaps. Um, but this is talking from a very different perspective and it also looks at the kind of influence of oil across humanity, um, which is just fascinating. So let's um, dive in and talk about um, this play. So Ella first up, uh, Ella, this I'm talking about another Ella, Ella Hickson, the playwright, <laughs> um, is becoming a kind of really prominent playwright in the UK and a little bit controversial in some great ways, yeah. doing some really challenging things in the theatre, like in one of her plays using headphones um, and looking through glass to um, engage in one of her plays. She's got some really fascinating political um, elements and commentary on late capitalism. Um, and she has said in interviews that this is she likes to find these really different ways of getting into something like late capitalism and our really problematic, troubling um, behaviours when we know it's not working for us, but we're still going back to it. So Ella, and about the other Ella, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, why did you choose oil and what kind of um, made you think this would be a, a red stitch play? Like what grab grabbed you? Great question yeah. because, um, I mean, look, the, the script itself, I think when I first – when I first heard about the play, it was the the geopolitical conversation that I that kind of got my interest. Um, but then, as soon as I read the script, I got very attached to the personal sort of journey of the mother daughter that travels through time throughout the course of the play. So that kind of hooked me. And and really, that's when we're choosing plays at Red Stitch. It's about what what hooks you. It's like kind of you have to be able to sit there in the ensemble meeting and and 
talk passionately about why this play must happen. And a lot of the ensemble felt like that. But funnily enough, it's quite big for us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's quite a it's it's not at first glance a red stitch play because of how ambitious it is in the text the form it demands a lot that a lot of people and a lot of other companies in fact yeah. sort of were like how are you gonna do that <laughs> you know but that's that's one of the wonderful things about about I guess having restrictions or budget restrictions or you kind of have to be really creative in the way that you approach the work um so really it was it was it was the the terrific writing and the mm. the way that she drew this these characters, um, and the way that she kind of made the the thematics very personal in doing that, so that I didn't, f- you know, it's not a didactic work. There's a lot of grey area, and as you said, it kind of talks about the progress that has been offered as well as the destruction as a part of the journey with yeah. with the oil industry. So. It, uh, Everything about the play I kind of fell in love with. Thought we've got to find a way to do it. Yeah. I'm so glad you did. And you've even changed spaces to put it on. And it's such a fascinating structure of how the stage is set, which is it's kind of like this horizontal, um, more narrow length of stage. And there's, there is a higher staged element at the top that's occasionally utilised. Um, but essentially the audience is on either side of this horizontal stage. It's almost like a catwalk but without the people <laughs> at the end. <laughs> and it's so much more intimate and kind of you feel like you're in the the action and also feeling the Im- really emotive el- uh, moments of these characters but particularly the mother-daughter relationship is so intense and fascinating to watch how it evolves across the course of the periods of time um first up let's just quickly talk about cornwall um which seems like a really interesting place to start a play especially in 1889 and utilizing candles as the sole mode of lighting at that in that act um because you're using the lighting of the time um, which is amazing so daniella from your perspective um you know exploring the character of may um and getting to know her fiery kind of, um, I guess she just seems to have this drive for progress and this drive for needing more. And, you know, she wasn't content with the situation she was in, even though she absolutely loves this man, Joss. And I was really interested in that complexity of your character and and the kind of real huge kind of weighty, weighty decision she made, but then she seems like she's just taken it and ran with it. Mm, she's very impulsive. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but but it's great to hear that the, the that what what uh, resonates is is the depth of the love that she has uh, for Joss. Um, so it's not it's not an easy decision, but there is this impulsiveness. Uh, she cannot not mm. move forward and want more. And there's a there's a line she has to her daughter in part three, which is in Hampstead in the seventies, and she says, I, "I I'm sorry he wasn't better. I do." I do uh, understand how hard that is, and and so she that he wasn't better. This idea that the love of your life is is not going, or the man. I think there there is all this you know feminist yeah. uh, thematic going through, which is incredibly strong and fascinating and complex. But the the idea that that he will not he he will dig his his heels into the into the earth, um, even though he's hearing her voice 
saying I want more for us mm. for us and our future family etc etc so she's not being particularly selfish in that moment well you know maybe she is we have this interesting <laughs> interesting debate in rehearsals a lot about what is selfish behavior and what is selfless behavior so I think that that is is mined a lot in the play too mm. that may every step of the way where she sees uh, potential for more or opportunities and she reaches for it can't help but um, not is 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 is, is, is for her daughter, she will say, you know, and and I think that is true, but it's also where where is where does that where does that stop kind of ringing true? And uh, yeah, it's great. And there are a lot of stereotypes and gender expectations on mothers at, yes. in all stages of these periods you're exploring, and also Amy, who's the daughter, um, who Hannah you play. Yeah. I mean, you have expectations of your mother. As well, which are quite clearly articulated in many acts. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I was interested in how you both kind of have this back and forth jostle because it's clear that you both have strong love for each other and because you've been a team es- essentially, you know, with all these life challenges, travelling from 1889 to 1908 in Tehran, you know, to the 1970s and then on and on it goes into the future, um, how... I, and particularly in the 1970s element you mentioned there, Daniela, you have some pretty kind of tense moments in your relationship and you're a teenager, 15 years old. Um, and some people have said that that was a bit of a metaphor for um, the point in the play as well, like that when the oil kind of producing companies are finally taking back control of their countries it, and rebelling against kind of Western colonialism and um, companies coming in. And, of course, May, you're representing them essentially by being the the representative of that, those companies. Um, Hannah, you have such a strong opposition, like uh, such a typically teenage, yeah. you know, view of the world. How did you explore the, that kind of really interesting dynamic of mother-daughter in those really um, fiery exchanges and moments of tension where you clearly have that connection but it's at a crossroads at some points where there's like a clear disconnect in your values or your political views at least? I mean, it, it's interesting throughout the whole play – always um Ella's kind of mirroring what's happening in, in the in the bigger scope with with oil always mirrored at some point in time with with what's happening in the relationships within it so that was really interesting for us to kind of map that arc throughout the play um and I guess those tense moments I mean that's really it's the nitty-gritty it's the fun stuff as actors but um I mean yeah May and Amy they <laughs> they are I guess similar in many ways and yes. then they have um I guess politically some pretty strong differences and that makes for some uh really wonderful I guess um tension to kind of play out. Yeah, and 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 there's also um you know gosh mother daughters where you know the mother the, the pressure on the mother and expectations to you know you 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 are highly hyper aware that you are the the primary role model. Mm-hmm. And yes, I've had a daughter, you know, and and I'm nurturing her and 
and everything I do, she, she's learning. But but at a certain point, yes, the teenager has to has to find their own voice, and there is this necessary rebellion, rebellion and wanting yeah. to cut cut away. Um, and I think it's interesting because May, yes, is at the height of her power, you know. And yes, the meta story is, you know, oil is at its height. We're all enjoying, you know, the benefits of oil, and and without thinking about the repercussions. Um, so I think May's in a situation where she's been challenged, you know, because when you're at the top, it's hard work and you're challenged and, and the daughter's doing that and, and, and equally uh, um, the Revolutionary Command Council yeah. <laughs> that Libya wants their independence, etc. So, so it's just so great. And look, yeah. it's all in the writing. Like I don't mm. feel that we're having to, Hannah and I are having to construct much. It, it really is all there for the taking and... Um, and I'm loving working with Hannah and the rest of the cast, in fact, because there's a real sense of uh, respect and um, honesty. In, 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 so we can actually go to quite extreme places and feel very safe. So that, that yeah. that's just something that's a blessing, actually. Mm. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I was interested in those feminist elements in yeah. the 1970s, which were fabulous. I even wrote down a few lines that really struck me um you may as the mother daniela Mm. was saying i need to protect her future from the passions of her present Mm -hmm. (laughs) this just kind of overarching need to make sure that she achieves her true capacity because you have so much belief in her and um and that amy says what if i'm prime minister but i never fall in love again when we're talking about the boyfriend who's not quite appropriate and uh-huh. not good enough <laughs> not in some enough, ways. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'm just interested. That's such a universal thing to be talking about, but the way that it plays out is really interesting about, you know, even in the 1970s, Amy saying, I could be prime minister, but what if I don't ever have, fall in love? What's mm. more important, achieving or having a partner or can you have both or do, do you want both? And this is the question that we all ask at yeah. every generation of, of women. I mean, I do think it is a, uh, I don't know, maybe that's too much to say, but, but it does sit with us and I'm getting a lot of mm-hmm. feedback about that. What, what can we have? Do we dare? Do we dare want it all? Maybe it's not possible. That, mm-hmm. that, and that is such a fearful place, isn't it, to, to consider that. And I don't know and, the, and I don't think the play's uh, um, kind of advocating that it knows, but it's right. certainly uh, opening it out there for discussion and... And, and tweaking all, all of those kind of fibres and nerves that might make us uncomfortable at times. Um, yeah, and, and, and we're even when May's in an absolute height of power, like it's ugly at times, it's ugly, and she becomes as brutal and and vile as, as what we might, you know, you know w- w- what we would expect at someone working at that level yes. of power. And control, um, and so you might question whether you, how, uh, whether you even like her, or you know what, yes. what is right. But I she think does I come full circle. Did that. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. When you became so dogmatic, <laughs> you know, I was just like, but why is she so determined? You know, yeah. about and why is she so attached to oil? Like, what about the other options? And and then we do get to the other options in the future, which is mm. fascinating. Another um, thing we talked about yeah. is power, though, like what it mm. is to be, what it is for May at that point. To be, as Daniela said, at the peak of her of her sort of prowess and, and, and having all this power and then what, what comes into play is fear of what happens if I let it go, what happens if I compromise, what happens if I, yeah. the, it, I'll fall back down through the through the cracks as she says you know Mm. and there's that and I and that that is not always true but that is something really interesting in the the thematics of the play that every step forward that we take is 
is that making us is that causing us to be more attached to the to the power or the security or whatever we're gaining and what does that then do to others Mm. Yes, you know, and that's yeah, something nice. that Amy says a lot. At, at what cost? At what mm. cost? All the way through. So the, there's something very interesting in there in the the sort of the fear of losing one's one's power. Um, yeah, and what you're willing to what you're willing to sacrifice in order to hold on to it. And and really, because one of the discussions we had is that if you if you if it's if it's not you in with power, is it someone else? Yes. And then where are you? What does that mean? Mm. Yeah. You know, where, where are you? There? And that's that's very interesting and kind of yucky conversation <laughs> to be having, <laughs> you know, but I think that's a really significant one in the play as well. Yeah. Would it be any different with someone else, better or worse? Yeah. And also what was interesting is that in the next scene when we're looking at Baghdad and you've got um, – May being a parliamentarian or having been one and having even kind of more influence or power over the political situation there and your personal safety there. And um, Amy finds that so jarring because you're there speaking um, in the the native tongue with a local um, and you just kind of just that local then makes Amy feel so, I don't know, Confronted confronted. by your own privilege? Yeah. (laughs) It's a really, um, I feel, as Hannah, I feel really cringy in in the moment of, um, I feel, yeah, Amy's privilege is massive um, in that, in that sort of scene. I love um, the perspective that Ella Hickson's given when she's, she's writing that, but it is certainly called out and, um, uh, Nicole, who plays Amina in that, um, really gets a moment of, of redemption for her sort of for her voice that she hasn't been able to have throughout mm. the play um, up to that point. Yeah, 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 and to hear her in English all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah I don't want to give much away, but it, a yeah, good it's, part of that it scene is, is in Arabic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're sitting there like mm, there's no subtitles. I'm really <laughs> just looking into the body language of what you might be saying yeah. with each other, but it seems like you're both so comfortable and that's almost looks like a mother-daughter type mm. relationship between mm. you two. That's interesting too. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That's, that's how it looked. But, yeah, that it seems like then you have that, oh, actually there's real, it's not all happy sunshine and rainbows and, you know. No. Yeah. A threat. You may have good intentions, but do you really understand and regret comes up a lot in the mm. play in terms of good intentions and the choices we make. And regret is um, an interesting thing. During um, rehearsals, I remember one conversation we had where Jen Valetic, one of the other actors in the in the play, who plays Mars Singer, um, spoke about regret and how it's it's not necessarily a negative thing because it causes us to take stock and to reflect, you know. Um, and and I guess the the question around around the choices that they make and the regret that might be felt leads us to, I don't want to give too much away, but to the end of the play where it's kind of like, what's that great quote? If only Darcy, one of the cast members here, he's great remembering all the quotes. <laughs> you know, it's about, about do, you, do you pay attention to history? Do you look back? Do you just regret or do you actually take stock and with that information make better choices mm. and so there is a there is I think an offer and, and hope in the play in that and that's something that we you know Amy makes different choices to May they have there's we see a cycle repeat and there's a lot of that in the play there's mm. a lot of um a sort of seeing how mistakes get re- repeated but at the same time Amy does Amy does make a different choice and and I think there's hope in that 
in the play. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that like when you get to the final scene and you're seeing them back together and living together and all the kind of little things bubbling up again from the past and things that you perhaps do regret or don't regret um, and things that may you think you've done for Amy that she doesn't still really grasp, like Mm. even though you've said it many times. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's beautiful. I love that that um, final part has always stayed with me. It was it was the thing you know uh, very strong when I first read it. Mm. Could almost see how it was going to be staged, and it didn't really. Uh, we didn't have to push that part at all. It just kind of arrived. But it's set in you know it's set in the future. It's twenty fifty. It's and there's something May is ancient. She's as old as oil is, you know, and she. She's tired and old, but she's deserving, she thinks. But she's also becoming, you know, there's this idea that she's redundant yeah. and being left behind and, and, and her, her, her memories are blurring and, um, you know, there's still a sharp kind of something in there of, of um, needing uh, Amy to, to, yeah, absolutely understand what it is I've done for you um, so that you could be here in this moment to then take it where you want to take it, I guess. I mean, this is the thing of generation to generation. I don't know what the answer is, but mm. it's like each generation has to experience their blossoming as if for the first time um, and and then and then discover that they kind of then become I don't know redundant is, is that you know it seems yeah. very bleak but um, but it's 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 not to no end. there is a sense of moving forward. We will continue to progress. We will. We have to. Mm. We, we can't not. It's human nature to, to 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 survive. I mean, I don't know. It's that is a big question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Humanity's survival. You yeah. Know, and, we, and you know, yes, we do regret, and perhaps we overdid it with the oil, and da, 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 and we will again. And um, but but we we continue to kind of keep moving at what cost? Yeah. They're great questions. Great thematics. Yeah. yeah. yeah and often unknown, like. Um, unknown consequences things that you may not predict absolutely yeah Yeah. and amy with when you're speaking to your mother hannah as amy Mm. um and you have kind of a semi-monologue i think and you're talking about um women being in beds kind Mm. of in rows and you were talking about women being made to be alone and there's this kind of i mean that's a major theme at the end for both characters and I'm really interested that really struck me probably got me in the gut a little as well because I was interested in that being such a strong confident statement Mm. you know that you were really reconciled and happy with it like that that was the right or it seemed like that was what your character had felt and even though May had been desperately in love with Joss and would still potentially be you know have his love or feel his love she didn't seem to have you know clear agony all the time like it seemed like you'd kept progressive kept you know moving on making new decisions based on the previous decisions and and didn't didn't stop moving forward so yeah from amy and hannah your perspective playing amy what was that feeling like in the final scene when you're kind of it's a mother-daughter thing but also a kind of a relationship or a love thing like a human yeah, I think um, I love that speech about all of the women lying lying yeah, in beds alone. So visual. Um, the quiet secret that, you know, that we all know. Um, I think for Amy, yeah, I think there's this great sort of um, – there's a great quote that we read when we were doing rehearsals about um, – about, uh, 
as much as you might want to help things progress and you might uh, want to make as uh, the most wonderful choices that you can for the earth, if you have a child, the choices that you make are likely going to be anchored to that, as May sort of often references in the play. It's for mm-hmm. Amy. All I do is for Amy. Um, and I think in Amy's choice, both to to be alone and, and not to have children, which is her choice in the play, um, it gives her a new perspective that May doesn't have and that's that she can make choices for the for the earth and for the world and for progress that are based on what on the benefit of all and not on the benefit of um you know having having someone that you feel responsible for I mean I don't know whether I I I don't know whether she can uh she's certainly like may a visionary I think and when she takes her steps um you know towards the end of the play she's I think I it's a, from a place of hope for me, even mm. though May has to be left behind. Um, it's it's it is. I think she is stepping out um, to move things forward. Yeah, you know, even when we uh, have this sale that comes in the part five of the new technology, um, Amy does understand the dangers of it. She's questioning it because she's walked this path with May, and she understands that there are costs for things. And so I think. Yeah, she has. She's she's looking at history and she's learning from it, and therefore, there's hope. I think at the end, yeah, progress. Yeah, it certainly reminded me of the first act and yeah. the end of that. Like yeah. it was quite symmetrical. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what a great play. Um, just finally, uh, it just seemed so physical. Like the physicality that you all as a cast had. I know it is a, a physical craft, but particularly May. And Amy, the way you embody the kind of anger and passionate times that the characters feel for other characters or for oil or, you know, their political views. Like it did seem like this is one of these plays where you really got to embody and explore physically some of that like really great human turbulence. Like how how does it feel doing a, a play that basically runs for two hours and 40 minutes with a 20-minute interval at that <laughs> that high level, you know, of energy? Oh, it just feels ace. Like yeah. I, I wouldn't want it to be any less, you know. Mm. It, it's such a great compliment to hear that because to, you know, it's an actor's dream. You want to embody the role. You don't want to be half, <laughs> half doing it or just on the surface. And yeah. so I think it helps, you know, it's interesting when you're working with dialect and um, too because you, you have to just start that preparation way early and 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 you simply because um, it can feel like you're performing with a wetsuit with dialect so you just got you've got to get it into your muscles and into your bones and deep 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 down so there's that but then that's also the content you know we'd been meeting for weeks and weeks in advance even before rehearsals and that's allowing space for the um the content to get in into you and I think then by the time you're at performance or in rehearsal you're digging deep and uh yeah it's just in in you <laughs> watching these sense. two in those meetings in yeah. the weeks leading up to rehearsals was such a exciting delight because they were just slowly <laughs> becoming more and more like <laughs> <laughs> and Amy in their discussions you've there's brilliant brilliant actors the whole cast are they really are. committed and yeah. brought so much to the room every day and yeah. these these to sitting here, um, Daniela and Hannah, you know, led the way brilliantly and the entire cast. I think what you see is the result of all of their very, very um, rigorous work and great writing. Yes, exactly. 
And it's um it's it's also liberating just to, just to, you know to to in terms of um, embodying being very physical mm. and and you mentioned earlier the traverse you know so so yes the theatre's in the traverse um, and that's liberating too because you're not. Um, tethered to some conventional traditional way of stand and deliver yeah. in a sense you're not uh, likely to slip into that mode you're more likely to you know that the hub is is in we're in on each other mm. and um, yes we're aware that you're there it encourages you know uh, an awareness around that but each audience member has seen a particular frame if you like um, and that's quite beautiful and, and unique and specific it encourages us to keep moving so perhaps that's why yeah, you have a walked so, away yeah. with a sense of oh it's very physical you yes. know because we can't stand still for too long, you know, in yeah. a sense. But it um, encourages us to connect with one another uh, much more. It's liberating. Yeah, well, it certainly comes across. And I feel like as an audience member, every cast member holds their own yeah. in, the, in the roles and or role that they're playing. And um, I really can't recommend people seeing it enough because it's just really so rewarding and thought-provoking and will cause many conversations (laughs) afterwards which is great and certainly I think it achieves what the director was hoping to which was to not make the audience go away and think oh bad bad you naughty you you know you're contributing to the downfall of our planet and kind of making having that superficial kind of feeling but actually to make it sit more deeply with people and make it sit with them for longer and and not have that feeling of kind of middle class guilt that doesn't actually achieve anything Mm, yeah great so that, that's my takeaway. Um, and everyone can go along. And it's at Red Stitch at South Yarra. Yes, it's, uh, it's our sister space, we yeah. call it, at the Cromwell Road Theatre. It's our first production there. We'll be doing just a couple there a year. But it's um, 27A Cromwell Road. And you can book online at redstitch.net. And, you know, the last couple of weeks always do kind of fill up and people go, oh, God, it's about to close. So get online and book. <laughs> do it now. Yeah. It's up until the 15th of December. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but don't be late. Yes. Um, thank you both and everyone, three of you, so much. Daniela Farinacci, Hannah Fredrickson and Ella Caldwell, all so talented. And please pass on my congratulations to the rest of the cast and crew for what is a really impressive show. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Amy. I've been speaking with people, the ensemble, part of the ensemble of Red Stitch Actors Theatre, and uh, they were... Director Ella Caldwell and cast members Daniela Fadonacci and Hannah Fredrickson talking about their Australian premiere of Oil, which is written by Ella um, Hickson. Hickson. I keep getting, because now there's two Ellas. I'm getting you both confused. Um, And it's fantastic. You have to go along. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.